Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Coming up on this week's show, we discuss USA's performances during the October international break, ESPN versus CBS's coverage of the US men's team, our thoughts on the Newcastle United takeover, how DAZN's coverage of the UEFA Women's Champions League is going so far, and your feedback in the listener mailbag segment. I'm Christopher Harris, aka The Gaffer, joined alongside my co-host, Kartik Krishnair. Kartik, uh, this week, uh, Kyle Fansler's not available. He's working, busy editing a video. Uh, actually, we've got two this week. So last week, uh, we released the uh, interview with uh, Mark Donaldson from ESPN. And uh, he's doing uh, two more interviews this week. And we'll, we will release uh, the next one probably by the time uh, most people uh, download this podcast. So probably uh, Thursday or Friday. And uh, that will feature either Derek Ray uh, or Christian from the, uh, the Cooligans. So, so, uh, so stay tuned to WorldSoccerTalk.com for that. Now, Kartik, for me, it, this this international break has seemed like the longest one ever. Um, by the time it's wrapped up, it's it's almost two weeks. Uh, a lot of the teams that have played in this international break uh, have played three games. Which uh, I think uh, I think you would agree is one too many. Uh, we're um, actually recording this on Thursday. There's still a whole set of uh, international uh, games to be played tonight from Conmebol. Uh, so a lot of these players from you know, Brazil and Argentina, etc., won't get done until uh, late Thursday, and then they'll fly t- back to Europe. Those that play in in, in European leagues and. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure if you know this, Kartik, but, the, but Real Madrid have uh, postponed their game. They had a, a game scheduled on Sunday, and they've postponed that uh, because they said you know, a bunch of our players are not going to be back in time. Or they'll be back, but they're not going to be ready to play this game. Um, you know, I, I don't see any, any uh, solution uh, for this um, other than maybe Arsene Wenger with his, uh, his, his crazy plan. But what do you think, Kartik? What's your sense on, on this whole uh, international break? Yeah, I'm tired of it. Look, I, I think uh, the the three match days crammed into one break in in some of the regions has created all sorts of uh, um, 
unintended consequences. And although I shouldn't say they're unintended, I think they were probably perfectly clear that there would be these sorts of knock-on effects before uh, these decisions were made to cram in these these matches. And I uh, I think you could have still had the World Cup draw uh, potentially over the summer and used the June break for qualifying or for intercontinental. Uh, well, I guess it, it, the intercontinental playoffs will be then, but, but the June break for that and then have uh, quick intercontinental playoffs after that and maybe do the draw in August because uh, – Look, I mean, I've been reluctant at times to criticize uh, the U.S. manager, Greg Berhalter, because I understand how difficult it is. A lot of fans don't seem to get this, how difficult it is to play every three days with a squad you've just assembled and travel uh, and travel great lengths. It's, it's, it's not a uh, it's not necessarily an easy trip from Austin to Panama City and back to uh, back to Columbus. Same thing with what how Canada's had to travel, Jamaica, everybody in this region, Costa Rica, et cetera. I, and it's creating a ripple effect for European football. And there was even the decision taken by the U.S. I mean, part of the U.S.'s problem down in Panama was not having uh, specifically Anthony Robinson uh, on the left side of defense, who, of course, uh, is playing very well for Marco Silva at Fulham. He makes that trip to Panama. He can't play for Fulham for two weeks. So uh, he would have to quarantine, which, he, again, so now managers are in difficult positions. We saw Jamaica uh, Really, uh, maybe their their chances for World Cup qualification were, were dealt uh, a fatal blow by being on the UK red list. And about half their squad plays, or maybe a little less than half their squad, but a lot of their key guys are, are UK or England English based, not able to make the trip for the first uh, uh, international break, including uh, Lowe, a player you're very familiar with, Chris. So, yeah, I, I think it's just created all kinds of complications that. That Liverpool-Manchester City match, yep. which was one of the great matches we've seen in world club football in recent years, one of the great dramatic events, you would like something to follow up on that quickly. Now, that match feels like it was a month ago. And the momentum that, that, that had been gained, also I, I talked about Serie A on, on uh I, I, I've spoke about how, how good Serie A has been the last few weeks, right, before the international break. That momentum is lost. So I, I don't know. I, I just wish there were a better way. And you make a point, Chris, about Wenger's plan. Wenger's plan does include, I don't like the every two-year World Cup, but it does include kind of this block-off period where you play club football straight through and then you have your internationals and your qualifiers. Maybe that is logical. I, I just wish it wasn't within uh, World Cup every two years. But there has to be some sort of um, way to, to, to mitigate these, these international breaks. I mean, keep in mind, last point, we used to have an international break in August. We used to have one in February also, which were midweek breaks that gradually got eliminated, which I thought were good things. But now looking back, maybe if we had had those an, an August match day with one match, a midweek match, and then a, uh, a similar thing in, in February this year, we would have been able to avoid all this, 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 this cramming of matches in September and October and November and March. The, the March break is going to have three, three matches as well. I think, I think part of it is the, the complication of international games in, in general nowadays are a lot more complex than what they used to be. So you have players now playing around the world. They may play their club football in Europe or in uh, South America but then their national team is, you know what I mean, uh, vice versa. I mean, they, they might play club football in Europe 
and then have the national team in South America or, or vice versa. Or you I mean we look at you know like in the United States, you have players that are playing uh, in leagues. You mean mostly in Europe and and in North America. So you have players traveling long dis- distances. You've got COVID, which is uh, still an issue. Uh, it used to be, Kartik, I don't, I'm not sure if you remember this, but it used to be that oftentimes for international games, club football would happen on the weekend. You'd have a, an international uh, game on a Wednesday night. And then, you mean, then the, the club football would return on the, on the weekend. Yeah, 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 that's specifically what I'm mentioning about the August and February breaks. They were done that way. Remember, there wasn't really a break in February, but you would have a Wednesday match. Uh, and then same thing with that August break. There wasn't really a break, but you would have – it was mandatory release, right? So there would be no club football during the week that week, and all the matches and leagues would end on Sunday. There would be no European or continental competition, and there would be no Friday match, right? You, you would have a Saturday match. But that – and I used to hate that, Chris. And that's why I was, I was an advocate and, and, and pleased when FIFA got rid of those two dates, those, the February date and the August date which happened, uh, the February date was eliminated in 2008 or 2009, and then the August date was eliminated, I believe, in 2011 or 2012. So it's been a while, but right? it's been over a decade for a decade or more for both. I, I think maybe that's, that's the solution, right, if you're going to keep this format, because what has ended up happening now is this just log jam in September and October. And, and, and as I said, we're going to have it again in March. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, that too, you mentioned uh, Wenger's idea of trying to combine these matches into kind of a bigger block of time, and then it, it's not, it wouldn't be a, an international break, it would be an international sabbatical. I mean, you, you imagine how, I mean, we know how long an international break feels. I mean, imagine, imagine two months kind of, of, of all these games being played. I mean, it's, it, it does affect things. I mean, because, I mean, there are fans of club football, there are fans of national, international football, and there are fans that like both. Um, and it, it is two different universes. I mean, there's a lot of people that I don't think that I think don't really follow uh, national, international football that much, other than may, maybe their own country. Um, and then the rest of the time, they're checked out. So, um, I mean, as far as, I mean, club football, when club football's in, in, in the swing, I mean, it's happening. It's, it's a, practically almost a daily event. There's always things happening to your club, whether it's press conferences, whether it's managers being sacked, whether it's, uh, you know, I mean, uh, League Cup football, and then, and then you have uh, another cup, cup game coming up. And so the international, the, the club football flow to me is is more exciting it's more entertaining and then the the international break that flow is just i mean i mean it's very much okay training 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 boring nothing really happening a game's played and then training 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 nothing really happens a game game's played it's very it's very monotonous Thank God, yeah. <laughs> thank God, club soccer is back uh, this weekend. And like you said too, that Liverpool Man City game was fantastic, entertaining, uh, controversial in terms of uh, James Milner staying on on the pitch, but a great game to watch. And and, and when you look at the schedule of um, the season calendar, I mean the Premier League and other leagues do that on purpose. They almost always pick. You mean that last game before an international break? They almost always have a big, big game scheduled on that day, 
and and I mean Liverpool, Man City w- w- was one of them, and 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 that's yeah. Now we now it's almost like starting all over again with this weekend. Yeah, Watford against Liverpool, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and I mean, pretty quickly we'll get right back in it. And before you know it, Kartik, it'll be November again, and straight back to international break. Yeah, and, and uh, at least in Concacaf, uh, the international break this time will only have the two matches. Uh, for the U.S., it's it's a, a match against Mexico in, in Cincinnati, very difficult match, and then a trip to the office down in Kingston against I I, I believe a, a renewed Jamaica side uh, after their. Uh, uh, after getting their players now released from England. Kamar Roof had a, had a nice goal yesterday, by the way. Uh, as we record this on Thursday morning, former Leeds United player, now star for Rangers, for Steven Gerrard and Rangers. Uh, but, uh, again, I, I, South America is going to have three matches, and uh, we're not going to really get into the flow of the season. I mean, Serie A in particular, maybe it was because Serie A started a week later than the other European leagues or two weeks later than, than Liga 1 that they didn't seem like Serie A really hit the flow until that weekend of Atalanta and Inter and uh, the, the Rome Derby, right, the Lazio-Roma match. And so then Serie A, who's on a new network in this country, right, new, new style of coverage from CBS, has captured us the last two weeks, and then boom, there's this break. And, and uh, I, I have a feeling we're going to have the same thing, right, Serie A, Premier League, uh, La Liga, Bundesliga gear back up and then another break. Uh, it's it's just it's terrible. And di- and I complained about the international breaks before Christmas. I think you have and many others have. But it's never quite been as bad as this year because of the three match days, because of the situation with South American qualifiers, with the situation with red list countries. Where, uh, for example, I'll just use the example of Villa, Aston Villa, uh, Buendia is a big signing for them this past summer from Norwich. Because he went to South American qualifiers and had to quarantine for two weeks, he hasn't actually integrated back into the squad. And he's a new player who was getting more time before the September break than he has since because he had to quarantine. And then uh, he comes back and Villa's playing well, right? And so Dean Smith's reluctant to really change that team around. Uh, And Mm -hmm. so it's hurting guys also. So let's take a look uh, briefly at um, the coverage of the CONCACAF World Cup qualifiers, specifically the U.S. And we're not going to go into a lot of detail about the uh, the games themselves because most of us have already – I mean, we, we've watched them. It's in the past. Uh, and, I mean, every, everyone's been talking about those games in terms of, you mean uh, – you mean pluses and minuses and criticisms, etc. But but let's talk about the television coverage because I, I don't think that's really been um, focused on much at, at all. And it's interesting because um, in terms of the CONCACAF World Cup qualifiers, uh, ESPN and Fox both share the rights to the uh, U.S. home games. Now, the away games, are um, the rights to those are with Paramount Plus and CBS – uh, the only exception is the uh, the Mexico away game, uh, which I believe uh, e- either ESPN or Fox has that one. But so it, it is a split, and um, from this past uh, uh, well week and a half, uh, Fox didn't didn't show any games on this one. But we had the USA against Jamaica uh, on ESPN, uh, ESPN two, and then we had uh, Panama against the USA, which was uh, exclusively in English language on Paramount Plus, and then USA against Costa Rica. On ESPN two and ESPN plus, Kartik, what, what's your take on, on, on the differences? Because they are very different, completely different styles. But 
kind of maybe pluses and minuses of, of uh, CBS versus ESPN and, and how they how they broadcast how, how they televise uh, games featuring the U.S. men's national team and and, and their analysis and, and commentators. Yeah, and let me preface this by saying I have uh, CBS's coverage of Mexico El Salvador on DVR, and I have not watched it yet, so I. I We'll, we'll just keep it specific to the U.S. because I did want to talk a little bit about CBS's coverage of the rest of CONCACAF, uh, particularly on a night when they don't have uh, the, the, the rights of the U.S. game, but uh, didn't get a chance to, to review that yet uh, as we record this on Thursday morning. So uh, maybe we'll do that in the future. In terms of the U.S., I think that there is a, um, an effort by CBS to be very fanny. Uh, that's a bad term, right? Very fan-driven, right? Very much uh, U.S. oriented, uh, have former players who are who are fans, but also have some some understanding or actually I would say a higher level of understanding of how difficult internationals are, how difficult travel is, how difficult CONCACAF is versus the average U.S. fan. Uh, but I was disappointed in the coverage of the Panama game in that we didn't get any analysis of Panama before the game. None. Uh, but we got far more discussion of what was uh, what we might see from the U.S., what the psychological factors might be, what the external factors in the camp might be, than we did on ESPN both on uh, Thursday, the previous Thursday night, and then the Wednesday night uh, with the pregame show, which was Seb Salazar, Jermaine Jones, and uh, Casey Keller. Now, I should point out for the Jamaica game on Thursday, that pregame show was bumped to ESPN+. Plus. Whereas on Wednesday, it was, it was actually a lead into the match uh, broadcast on ESPN2. Uh, the flip side is, when you get John Champion and Taylor Twelman in particular, you have a lot of understanding of, of the opposition. And I think particularly the Jamaica game, because uh, John Champion has called matches with a number of those Jamaican players, right? Because so many of them play in England or have played in England previously. So he was very familiar with that squad and, and, and a number of the players. And then the guys who have not played in England generally have been guys in MLS or USL who they're both Pullman and uh, champion are very familiar with. So uh, they gave us more perspective on Jamaica. And again, maybe I'm sensitive about this because of where I live in South Florida, but there are, there are um, lots of Jamaica men's national team fans in, in particularly where I live in Broward County, Fort Lauderdale area that uh, would have, uh, We'll probably end up complaining about the broadcast on Paramount Plus uh, next or CBS Sports Network, wherever it is next month, uh, from from the match down in the office because they probably won't emphasize and talk about Jamaica as much as ESPN did in their broadcast of this game. Hey, Kartik, let, 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 let me let, let me just chime in just for a second because that USA Jamaica game. So the number of viewers on this one, which is interesting, ESPN two I think had five hundred ninety seven thousand viewers. Um, that's just off the top of my head. Uh, and then Univision, or I think it was on Tudo NA and Univision, or, or was it Unamas and, and Tudo NA? But anyway, the Univision, the Spanish language broadcast of this game, was over a million viewers. So USA against Jamaica, obviously there's, I mean, yes, there are, in South Florida, there's a large uh, Jamaican population. Uh, and throughout the US, there's, I mean, there's, there's a percentage of that population, but it's relatively small. So when it's USA against Jamaica and Univision has... I mean, almost double the amount of viewers. 
you know, I mean, so again, that could be bilinguals, that could be Spanish language speakers who have, who are American who live in the United States. But, but I just wanted to kind of uh, add add that in terms of the context. That's kind of stunning, actually, because these are two English language speaking Teams, countries right. in the United States, right? Predominantly English language. Obviously, Jamaica is all English. Or the U.S. is is a bilingual country, majority English. That that is. A surprising number. And when I mentioned uh, Jamaica national team fans in South Florida, there are uh, a number, but I don't know that there is, I mean, they might be the people watching on ESPN actually. And and I think uh, from my own uh, conversations with Taylor Twelman, he's conscious of that, Chris. He's very conscious, which maybe uh, the guys at CBS aren't as conscious of, that there are fans of the opposing national teams when you're talking about CONCACAF, maybe a uh, uh, champion and, and 12 men may treat a, a match against a European opponent or an Asian opponent a little differently if, the, if there isn't, they don't have a big population in the United States. But 12 men, I can tell you, is very conscious of the fact that there will be fans of Jamaica, fans of Costa Rica, fans of, uh, uh, of Honduras, whoever watching the match against the U.S. And, and right. so he, he, he does gear his commentary to, yeah, it's a U.S. broadcast, but I know a percentage of the audience is interested in what um, what Theodore Whitmore in Jamaica are doing. Well, I don't quite think CBS has that awareness or that interest, maybe, in, in the opposition as of yet. What I would say is that when I watch CBS's coverage, to me, when I'm watching it in the studio analysis, it leans slightly more to Fox Sports than, than it does to, to a, say, an ESPN. And, 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 the, and the reason I say that, too, is that it, it is very much... USA, USA, let's talk about USA, let's not really talk about the opponents. Uh, or if we do talk about the opponents, let's not go into detail because we're not as familiar with that. Um, and it is, I mean, Moadu, who also works for, for Fox Sports, Kate Abdo, who used to work for Fox Sports, uh, and you got Charlie Davis, or J- Davies, who you could see him easily fitting in with with a Fox type of broadcast in terms of just, I mean, just, just, you mean a former American footballer just talking about, you mean the passion for his team and his country and his analysis. So, so that leaning slightly towards that Fox side of the kind of the uh, the umbrella is not a good thing. I, I think. I, it, you, you mean that's the thing about the USA? Oh, actually, no. I'm sorry. The Panama USA game, a halftime. You mean the first half was just a you mean a horrible performance by the United States. You mean lackless, just 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 lifeless, really. And going into that halftime analysis in the studio there with Paramount Plus, there was no energy. It was very flat. So I, I think part of it too is that um, I, I mean the cast, other than Kate Abdo, I mean they're all American, so they wear their hearts on their sleeves. And and so because that U.S. performance in that first half was was so uh, lacking energy. The analysis we got in the studio was lacking energy. It just was was kind of like, oh gosh, this is. I mean, well, I would like to see somebody that would be more kind of more critical, or maybe more like, hey, here's what's going on, here's the problems, um, and and have a little bit more energy in in that uh, analysis. Yeah, I I think also part of this is you have broadcasters who right, Kate Abdo is the exception, right? And she's very cosmopolitan. But you have broadcasters that don't at, at, at the current point in time uh, in that studio. Obviously, Drake Cordero is, is calling serial matches and call, has called matches from around the world. But in terms of the studio, people who are calling matches from other leagues around the world or have 
that eye that they're seeing things outside the U.S. or outside the CONCACAF bubble. So this returns me to ESPN and Casey Keller. Casey Keller is uh, both on the world feed and on ESPN's um, coverage of the Bundesliga. He does a lot of Bundesliga matches. Now, obviously, there's a big chunk of the U.S. team and guys who are U.S. M&T eligible who haven't been called in recently, like Julian Green and, and Joe Scaly and others that are in the Bundesliga. So that gives him kind of, I think, a broader perspective about the, about the U.S. player pool and then also what the expectations should be for play. So I, you know, I come away from this international break. I don't want to get deep into it on this podcast. You can listen to me on any number of other things I've been on or will be on the remainder of the week about the U.S. to, to get my opinions into play. But I felt like people and broadcasters were overly negative after Sunday's match, overly hard on Burhalter, overly uh, uh, not understanding what... what, what the larger context of things. Similarly, I think after the Wednesday match, people were overly rosy on the national team and uh, not uh, critical enough of, of the performance and some of the flaws in the tactics and the squad selection. So again, that goes back to your point of halftime of the Fox, oh, sorry, not the Fox, CBS studio, could have been Fox, as you mentioned, <laughs> uh, that there seems to be this emotional roller coaster just based on results and on scorelines and matches and not enough critical analysis of what's actually happening in each match. So yeah. um, that, I guess maybe that's the case with every national team because I've complained about it with the U.S. A lot of people tell me, hey, you're right, but you should check out what it's like with the Mexican national team. You should check out the reaction to the German national team in Germany. And I know, for example, what happened in Germany is people stopped watching the national team, right? Their television ratings, domestic television ratings, plunged wow. as uh, negativity reached uh, an apex. We've seen that in the U.S. too, yeah, right? for like sure. The ratings you just cited, uh, those were better for ESPN, that Jamaica game, but still uh, half the viewership of, of Spanish language. And we've seen for friendlies that the numbers just completely bottom out and a lack of interest. And so, um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's, it's to be continued, this narrative. CBS, let's, just, let's also dial it back for a minute here, Chris. CBS is new to this they've just dove head first into the international game obviously they've now been broadcasting the club game for a few seasons but um i i get the sense that they'll 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 tweak and adjust and we've seen that even with their champions league coverage we even saw that with their Serie A coverage which i think is dramatically different in october than it was in august already yeah two months and in. better so, yeah yeah it's a lot better so what a- what I would say, though, Kartik, what I would say is one of the reasons why I think the analysis is all over the place and, and the hype, I mean, basically everyone's kind of just like hypersensitive to these games and uh, kind of it's like a roller coaster ride, really. One, one, the first part of it is, I think, desperation. And it's desperation because we know that we missed out on the last World Cup and it is more important than ever for the U.S. to qualify for the 2022 World Cup. Reason being, not only because of the United States, but because of the growth of soccer in this country. I mean, we know that the 2018, by not qualifying for that World Cup, that that hurts the growth of soccer in this country. Whether they're fans of the U.S. national team or not, whether they, I mean, basically kind of the the new people coming through, whether it's younger generations or if it's uh, casual sports fans and they come across the World Cup, that is often really kind of the almost like the uh, the birth time of, of soccer fans uh, or people becoming soccer fans uh, every four years. So, so that's the first part. The second part, why the analysis and, and hypersensitivity is all over the place, I think is the hype factor. 
you, you, you go back in the last 12 months, um, whether it's Gio Reyna, Christian Pulisic, you mean Tyler Adams, and you go down the list. The hype factor is off the charts as far as, you mean, Sergio Dest, etc., off the charts. By the hype factor alone in terms of just the way that uh, CBS, Fox, NBC, I mean, everyone is talking about these players, writing about these players, interviewing these players, uh, talking about it on Reddit or Twitter or Facebook or whatever. Those hype charts are way off. You mean, they're way, way, way high. And then the reality is oftentimes is, yes, these are young, uh, skillful, talented players, but the, the reality doesn't live up to the hype yet. It could in the future, perhaps, but it, it's not like, uh, I mean, it doesn't happen overnight and it, and it does take time and, and there's no guarantee that it's going to happen. And I think that's part of the reason that why the analysis is that, that roller coaster ride. When the U.S. wins, it's, okay, isn't, isn't this great? These, these young players, can they go all the way? Look at how great they are. And when they lose or tie, um, then it's like, oh, my gosh, the coach, what was he doing? You know, why isn't he do- doing this? Why isn't he doing that? And I think that's where we're at. And, and a lot of it ba- is based on everybody wanting the U.S. to qualify for 2022. It's, it, it's that important. Yeah, I, I agree, and I, and I think that that's creating this hypersensitivity. But there's also the, the, the thing that really galls me is that even after not qualifying for 2018, there seems to be a disrespect of CONCACAF opposition among U, the U.S. fan base and some in the U.S. media. Panama finished ahead of the U.S. last time with many of these same players. Let's not forget. Uh, Costa Rica, I think, is kind of long in the tooth. Their time is done. Uh, whenever I mention uh, the, the quality of the Canadian team, I get all kinds of uh, pushback and uh, people basically uh, in disbelief that Canada could be could have the quality of players that they have. And uh, Alfonso Davies, I think anyone who uh, our friend Wanarongo has been championing it, too. Right. I mean, uh, there's no comparison between Alfonso Davies and any other field player in CONCACAF right now mm-hmm. uh, at the club level or the international level. So. Uh, yeah, that's I, it's frustrating, but I do understand why there's this urgency and why there's this kind of panic when, whenever things go wrong and this euphoria when things go well. Although I think I, I could very easily make a case that those results could be reversed, that the U.S. would have lost to Costa Rica at home had certain things not happened. Navas hadn't gotten hurt. There had been a, a clear penalty. I feel there's no bar in CONCACAF, a clear penalty call uh, that Costa Rica would have gotten late in the first half. Flip side, Panama, yeah, the U.S. was terrible, but uh, the one goal came off a set piece and, and, uh, and an attacker losing his mark on the set piece, and very easily the U.S. Um, could have gotten a goal on the, on the counter. There, was an opp- there were a couple opportunities late in the match. So um, it is what it is, I suppose. Yeah, and, and going back to the ESPN versus CBS in terms of who's doing a better job of covering the U.S. national team, at least for these, these uh, few games here in October. Um, for me, I mean, the commentators, I mean, John Champion and Taylor Twelman are better than uh, Dre Cordero and uh, Mo Adu. Uh, I mean, uh, I mean, I mean the, Cordero and Adu are good too, obviously, but Champion and, and Twelman are in a different league. But I would say, though, Kartik, that even though I was criticizing uh, CBS's uh, studio coverage before, I think CBS's studio coverage is better than ESPN's coverage. And and the reason why I say that is that um, I've been really disappointed with Jermaine Jones. Uh, I thought he was going to be a lot better. I thought uh, his his accent, his 
I mean, delivery would have been a lot stronger. Um, and you I mean it, it, it's it's a little bit. I mean, you have to re- listen really closely to what he says, but it's really difficult to understand him at times. He doesn't have that passion and energy that we did see that when he worked. I think it was on Fox actually a couple of years ago when he did uh, one of the games. He was really really good. So I'm not sure what happened in between. The other thing though, too, is that um, I like Seb Salazar and I like Casey Keller. Um, but having them uh, in the stadium and trying to provide their analysis and you're hearing in the backgrounds that you mean the sounds of the fans and the game and you mean it, it's distracting. It's really difficult to listen in and, and hear their analysis when when they're at the stadium versus when you go back to a studio and there they are and it's you mean you mean kind of in a sterile environment and you get to listen to them. So so I would say that definitely. On the commentating side, ESPN is doing better. And then on the studio side, I actually would say that CBS is doing better than ESPN, at least for these uh, U.S. men's national team games. Yeah, there's always a question as to whether you want to have a studio at the, uh, at the venue, uh, a pitch side uh, studio, or whether you want to have uh, a studio studio. And that's, uh, that, that, that's an ongoing question in, in broadcasting live sports. And... and uh, it's um, it's something ESPN has actually grappled with. I mean, they have they have uh, obviously they're I think the thing ESPN covers the most uh, uh, the most extensively is college sports, and they 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 balance the two right the the, the game day crew being on campus and uh, be, being uh, at the big game versus the the studio that just gives highlights and analysis that's sitting in in either uh, Bristol, Connecticut, or in Charlotte. Uh, North Carolina, and they, and they just they hash it out from there. So that's uh, I, I think there's almost like a balance where maybe ESPN needs to add a Bristol studio element to it, and CBS needs to add a pitch side desk element to it. Although CBS's commentators are not typically at the game, so that's that's a whole other uh, story. So yeah, uh, this is to be continued in November, I think. Yeah, yeah. As, I pre- as both CB as we have two U.S. games, ones on CBS, ones on ESPN too. So. We'll have this conversation again. Well, well, that's a good good point, though, Kartik, because I I definitely and I think most of our listeners would agree with this, though, too, is that we definitely want to have the match commentators at the game because they can see things that we can't otherwise. And a perfect example of that was Wednesday night in the the game USA against Costa Rica and Taylor Twelman. Uh, mentioning that uh, Serginio Dest was in a, uh, I mean, basically it was off off the pitch, right by the uh, the the byline there. Right, Keep, you, keeping right, the right, game goal on was was a good goal, Twelman. Whereas if you have commentators who are not at the match, you're still not clearing that up until halftime, probably. Exactly, because you're not seeing. Obviously, that was something that happens where if he wasn't in the stadium, he probably wouldn't have seen that Sergio Des was like right right behind the goal there. Uh, versus being in person, seeing it, observing it, and then getting uh, Mark Clattenburg to to share his thoughts about it. Um, that was some really good stuff, and, and and that's something that we were missing. We're missing when it's uh, Drake Cordero and Moadu in the studio, and it's a bit awkward too because you have um, Moadu oftentimes in the studio giving his uh, pre-match analysis, and then he's like, "Hey, okay, I gotta go, I gotta go uh, join uh, Drake Cordero," and then they're in a Stellar booth giving the match commentary. It's not as good. I mean, and and so so there's definitely room for improvements on both sides there, Kartik. All right, let's move on to uh, our match to watch this weekend. Kartik, what's your recommendation of uh, the must-see game? 
Yeah, West London Derby, uh, which is Brentford, Chelsea. First time this match has been played in the top flight in at least 60 some odd years. And uh, I believe they played a couple times in, in the second division when Chelsea was relegated. Chelsea was frequently relegated in the uh, in the in the late 70s and early 80s. I, uh, but first time in the top flight in the Premier League in history. Uh, two near neighbors, Brentford's uh, new stadium. They've already been a story of the season. Chelsea, I think, has the advantage now technically in the title race because they have not dropped a, a single point to a non-top four side, whereas City, United, Liverpool have all dropped points. Liverpool's dropped points were to Brentford, actually, uh, have all dropped points to uh, non-top four sides. Uh, that having been said, I do, I do stick with my prediction that Liverpool was this, the best team in the Premier League and City is a close second. But at this point, based on what's happened in the season, Chelsea have the advantage. This will be a real test for them. And I, um, I have to say this as someone who knows a lot of Chelsea supporters. Chelsea supporters always were very contemptuous and dismissive of Fulham as, as a local rival. But when Queen's Park Rangers, those few times they came up into the top flight, there was more of a Derby feel for them and more of a, we hate QPR, we hate we can't stand them, that's our rival. I wonder where Brentford fits. Does Brentford fit into the Fulham category or do they fit into the QPR category? Or are they the happy medium between the two? I guess we'll find out starting on Saturday. Yeah, the, the other thing about this too, Kartik, a, a, uh, an advantage for Chelsea, I think, is that um, fewer players from South America so international break, you look at Liverpool and Man City and the number of players that they have in their squad from South America and whether or not they'll be able to play this weekend and their recovery time versus Chelsea players. A lot of them, I mean, whether it's Africa or Europe, but probably less travel distance coming back to their game. And then my recommendation for this weekend is uh, Juventus against Roma uh, on Sunday, 2.45 Eastern time on Paramount+. Plus. Uh, for me, Roma is a joy to watch, uh, not only because of Jose Mourinho and his antics uh, running up and down the touchline, but also uh, Tammy Abraham, who is continuing to grow into uh, improving as a footballer. We saw him I mean, this past week uh, playing for England. And uh, he's really on a hot streak right now with Roma. And, and coming up against Juventus, uh, I'm looking forward to watching that one on Sunday, 2.45 Eastern time. Yeah, yeah Juve has very quietly and, and made hard work of it, but they have turned their season around. Uh, they're grinding out results the last few weeks. They haven't played. I don't think their performances have been particularly good. I don't think, to me right now, they don't look as good as maybe four or five other teams in, in Serie A. There are a lot of good teams in Serie A. Juventus is slightly behind those teams, I think. But uh, they're getting results now, and that's what Allegri teams do. We have to remember that. It's been a few years since we've seen Allegri manage. But the, his teams don't all, aren't always easy on the eye, but they get results. So this will be a good contrast. And actually, for those who haven't watched Roma, this idea that Mourinho parks the bus and is going to be very negative, haven't seen it yet. They've been very fun to watch, yep. very open in their play. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to uh, TV streaming news, Kartik. Yeah, Alta Football has announced a new partnership with the UEFA Women's Champions League, uh, their global rights holder, broadcaster DAZN, to make games available to paid subscribers. Uh, Alta Football will stream 31 tournament matches over the course of the group stage round of 16 quarterfinals, semifinals, and finals to its pay, uh, paid subscribers. Matches will be available live at Alta Football and at DAZN's new 
uh, Women's Champions League YouTube channel. And by the way, saw a lot of Atta football this week with their coverage of uh, the WSL, which always takes center stage when the men are on an international break. So uh, uh, they're doing a lot of good work and consolidating. And, and we, we did an interview with them now probably over a year ago, Chris. And they, mm-hmm. their goal always was to consolidate as much women's football onto a single platform as possible. And they're well on their way to doing that. Yeah, next up is uh, ESPN, the television network, uh, probably won't consider a direct-to-consumer streaming service until the pay TV bundle falls below 50 million U.S. households, according to a report on uh, CNBC last week. At that stage, industry uh, experts argue that Disney could likely make more from a full-service sports streaming service than it would make in a wholesale pay TV distribution model. Uh, ESPN currently has 75 million TV subscribers. So what they're talking about here is that, okay, 75 million TV subscribers. And uh, if you subscribe to, you mean, cable or a satellite company, uh, even if you don't watch ESPN, um, part of your subscription fee, a large part of it, is going to to ESPN and ESPN2 and the ESPN channels. And uh, right now, if ESPN said, you know what, let's go ahead and, and take our uh, channel, the, the ESP, ESPN flagship, and let's, let's put that on streaming, just as available streaming uh, directly to consumers. Uh, at this point in time, it doesn't make sense for them to do that. But if that 75 million TV subscribers falls below the 50 million uh, TV uh, subscribers, then at that point, they might make the change. Might, they might make the switch and say, you know what? Um, we can offer ESPN, the main channel, I mean, the one that has, I mean, not ESPN Plus, but the main channel, and that will become the option uh, to subscribe to that directly, bypassing the the cable companies, bypassing the satellite companies. uh, ESPN would be confident at that point that they can make more money from that than they could from from just the the, the TV side. So it's going to happen. And, And it ultimately, does ESPN Plus become... Yes, ESPN just by itself, and and that is the streaming service that has the ESPN TV channel, um, which has a lot of games uh, that are not on ESPN Plus. Although it, the two of them are kind of morphing a little bit, though, Kartik, especially with the U.S. men's national team games. Um, the I mean, the U.S. game against Costa Rica that was on ESPN Plus. Uh, the U.S. U.S. game against Jamaica was in, on ESPN Plus, and then next month's game, the uh, U.S. Mexico game is on ESPN2 and ESPN+. Plus. So slowly but surely, or actually very quickly, they're starting to morph together anyway. Yeah. Yeah, they certainly are. And I think what Disney's strategy has been from the beginning, and we got a little insight into this now. Gosh, it's probably been about three years. It can't keep track of time anymore with COVID, right? Uh, seems to have blurred our, our, our recognition of time. About three years ago, we were up in Bristol, you and I. And the sense I got from that was that ESPN Plus wasn't, uh, wasn't a, a service meant to uh, supplant of, of ESPN in any way and to placate cord cutters. It was actually just a supplemental uh, streaming service, which is maybe why they've kept it. Uh, kept it so cheap. Now we see since uh, other supplemental streaming services, Discovery Plus, uh, same thing with uh, Paramount Plus and, and Peacock, among others, uh, HBO Max, those launch. But there is a certain degree of uh, those those services, I think, 
being use, more useful for cord cutters maybe than ESPN Plus is, right? ESPN Plus uh, is just supplemental material for now. Yeah, it's it's interesting though too cuz because I mean this USA Mexico game that's going to be next month in November. Normally, if we went back say 3 years ago and ESPN had announced USA against Mexico World Cup qualifier is going to be on ESPN2. The whole world <laughs> it seems or at least the soccer world in the United States would have gone crazy. I mean, would have said like this is ridiculous. This is USA against Mexico. This is a World Cup qualifier. It's disrespectful is what they would say. Completely, and it's they'd say like, why is this not? On, why is it? Why is this not on ESPN? And it was because of you know, college football, probably. But people would have been freaking that out. That's the reason, actually. But <laughs> right. But but last week though, so last week when ESPN announced it, uh, and we covered this on WorldSoccerTalk.com on the website, ESPN announced the game will be on ESPN two and ESPN plus. And I think by having it available also on ESPN Plus, that diffuses the situation. That that's the, those people that are upset that the game's not on ESPN. Hey, it's on ESPN Plus. Everybody everybody gets ESPN Plus already. Uh, no big deal, right? It just it just as ESPN Plus is almost as accessible as ESPN is. And I think I think it, the way that ESPN's been doing this is such a smart strategy overall, as far as ESPN Plus. I mean, they will keep increasing the price. Probably a dollar. Uh, we're now up to. We started at four ninety nine a month. We're now at six ninety nine a month, and I think six ninety nine a month for the value that you get for you know, all the the La Liga games, all the Bundesliga games. Now it seems all the all the US games, uh, all mostly the out of market MLS games. You go down the list. There's a ton of content, and every six months to nine months, they'll probably increase it by another dollar. So the, the, I guess the question is, is that what is that point where um, that price point, is it twelve ninety nine a month? Uh, I mean, are, are we happy with paying twelve ninety nine a month for ESPN Plus? Now, if that also includes every single Premier League game, yeah, hell yeah. So, um, what, <laughs> Kartik, what about you? What, what's, what's your price point? What's your point where you kind of say like, eh, ESPN Plus, eh, it's, it's too expensive now? I don't know because I, I've, I'm a bad person to ask. I keep signing up for these things. So <laughs> uh, I really have to trim my bill because it, between Peacock and, and all acts, uh, not all, uh, Paramount Plus, ESPN, the whole Disney bundle, the uh, uh, HBO Max, et, et cetera, I'm paying a lot uh, for streaming services. I mean, I even have an add-on to Amazon Prime, a Star's channel for movies. So. Uh, I uh, I keep saying I need to cut, and I think what, what I was going to do was cut Peacock uh, this year and just didn't do it. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe if it got to twelve ninety nine a month, that would be a cutoff. But right now, it's six ninety nine. It's not a. Uh, it's not to me that big a deal. I, I think I yeah. probably would absorb a couple more price hikes before canceling. I guess part of it though too is is how much are we paying for Netflix right now? And I think Netflix, for me personally, which I have an account that has, I think, four or five people that can access it. So each of my kids have their own login. I think I'm paying, with taxes, I think $18 a month. And I don't watch much Netflix. Now, my kids do. My kids love it. My wife watches it all the time. Uh, Well, not all the time, but she watches it a lot. So if I said to the kids and to my wife, hey, I'm canceling Netflix, (laughs) there'd be be, uh, chaos. There'd be like riots in my house. Um, And $18, I think, is whatever Netflix goes to, 
the argument could be made that ESPN Plus, that price point for the value you and I get and the listeners get if we're sports fans, which we are, obviously, um, it's, on, it's, on, it's, on a, it's on a part to that. So, uh, I mean, ESPN will know what that, what that cutoff is. They will look at those numbers. They will continue to analyze those, those numbers and see how many people um, go ahead and cancel their subscriptions uh, as a dollar is added per per month. You know, you know, whenever they do the price increases, so they they'll know, kind of like, hey, all right, let's stop here because you mean it, anything more than this, it's going to ask, actually hurt us uh, rather than help us. And just a couple more news items, Kartik. Um We talked about uh, ESPN, and we've talked about Atta Football. Well, NBC, NBC, in their latest uh, viewing numbers, NBC Sports uh, reports that they are averaging a total audience delivery of 608,000 viewers per Premier League match window this season. That's up 31% compared to last season, and it's the best season opening uh, for the Premier League viewership since the 2015-16 season. So, so far, so good. And, and that's really with, um, I mean, Pulisic being injured, Ronaldo coming back. Um, the 31%, I, I wouldn't put as much uh, of a emphasis on that just because of everything that happened uh, last year with uh, the pandemic. But uh, so far, so good there for the Premier League. And NBC, of course. Let's move on to the list of mailbag. Uh, first up is uh, Aza. And he says, uh, I know it's very early to talk about the TV schedule for the 2022 FIFA World Cup. And, and Kartik, this is a good one for you, more than for me, really. Um, Aza continues, I was wondering if World Soccer Talk will publish an article about how the NFL and other sports programming might affect the TV schedule for the World Cup on Fox and FS1 as it's being played in November and December. And and this is something that keeps on changing, right? As far as, you mean NHL moving from NBC to ESPN, uh, golf coverage moving from place to place. But, but really, it comes back, circles back more to the NFL and college football, from what I can uh, understand. But Kartik, how much of an impact do you think um, having the World Cup in the winter in 2022 from November to December is going to have on scheduling for Fox and, and for FS1? Oh, massive, uh, massive uh, issue for Fox, which is why FIFA very quietly extended them through 2026. Let's not let's uh, keep that in mind. So I think that it's a uh, it, it's a real uh, challenge for Fox where they're going to fit all this stuff and how they're going to fit it and timings, etc. So and they don't have as much bandwidth necessarily as other uh, broadcasters. So, yeah, uh, I, this, may, this, this probably will end up in a print article, Azer, sooner or later on World Soccer Talk. It's just uh, we're still more than a year out. Yeah, and let me just look real fast as we're uh, online here. And um, let me see. I have the TV schedule here for um, the games. So, for example, if we look at... Um, 2022, which seems so far away, but it really isn't, right? Uh, the group stage. A lot of the group stage games, with the time difference between the United States and uh, Qatar, um, and that, now these kickoff times would, would be Eastern time. So let's let's look at uh, at a Saturday, which would be a, a, a Saturday to a Sunday, which would be big days for uh, college football on a Saturday, and and a big day for college um, NFL football on a Sunday. Um, the first weekend that's going on a Saturday and a Sunday in November 
which happens to be Thanksgiving weekend also. But the, the sat- Saturday, the kickoff times are Eastern Time, 5 a.m., 8 a.m., 11 a.m., and 2 p.m. Uh, and that's the other thing, too, with having so many teams uh, in the 2022 World Cup. There's going to be more games. So you've got uh, four games spanning from 5 a.m. Eastern time, which is not going to be a big deal, but all the way through to about 4 p.m. Eastern time. And that's just that's just the games themselves. Uh, that doesn't include, of course, uh, shoulder programming. Now, on the Sunday, which would be a big uh, NFL day, um, same thing again, too. So 5 a.m. to about 4 p.m. So I guess I guess the issue is going to be the scheduling more so is going to be those afternoon games uh, on the Saturdays and on the Sundays. So the 11 a.m. Uh, Eastern time and the 2 p.m. Eastern time would be the ones that would be the, the big issues. And if if Fox has college football and has uh, NFL games, then where, where does it go? I mean, you're right as far as kind of the overflow. You mean it, like if they have FS2? But that, that's pretty scary. Um, I mean, they, they've got Tubi, but um, it is going. It, it is going to be an issue. Yeah, yeah. All right. Next up is Jason. Jason says, "I just read an a, a ESPN article about how Kevin De Bruyne uh, injected himself with painkillers during the Euro, Euro tournament in order to play." This brings up fixture congestion, uh, the issue again. Do you think that the major leagues should reduce to 18 teams? It is a big reason why I think the Bundesliga is good, reasonable to manage players, and easier to follow. Imagine if the Premier League becomes what it is now, minus Norwich and Newcastle United. Not much of a loss, plus four less games, with television coverage becoming streaming based based now. I think it is doable. What's your take, Kartik, on the uh, number of teams in a yeah, league? I've been an advocate for, for all the domestic leagues dropping to 18 teams for a while now. Um, and FIFA had pushed that more than a decade ago, and it, it didn't really happen. But I, uh, the top flight leagues, because of the fixture issues, I, I've actually been a, been a pretty strong advocate of that and have worked out through the years a number of scenarios on how the Premier League or how the system in England could implement that over the course of a number of years, number of seasons. You wouldn't drop to 18 immediately, but you would uh, you would balance the leagues, the, the lower divisions in such a way that you get there in three or four seasons. Uh, but I don't think that there's as much momentum for it now as there was maybe a decade ago. And there, there was a lot of talk, though, that Germany's international performances reflected the fact that their players were fresher because of the, the longer winter break due to the uh, 34 match season versus 38. But that's that conversation has faded as Germany's international fortunes have faded. So, so I'm not sure if you caught that, though, uh, to Kartik. Jason mentioned uh, Newcastle United, not much of a loss. And and you as a Manchester City fan, having go, gone through, I mean, you've been a City fan since the early 80s, and having gone through your club being bought out by, you mean, Taksin Chernoatra, a very controversial figure, and all of the issues that circulated around that, and perhaps you can give some, a little bit of a recap about, about that as a city supporter and what those issues were. Um, and also the other part of it, too, is, is, is it didn't happen overnight, right? It didn't happen. Success didn't happen overnight. It wasn't as if the, the buyout came for Man City and all of a sudden they were you mean, playing, winning the Champions League final and win, winning the Premier League. Uh, it did take time for City to build themselves into the club that they are today, which is a major player in world football. 
And this circles back to Newcastle United and uh, the Premier League giving the approval for the, the Saudi uh, sovereign states to go ahead and acquire and take over Newcastle United, which it has happened. Uh, the first game under the, the new owners will be Sunday. Another game to watch this weekend, definitely Newcastle United against Spurs. And it looks like Steve Bruce will be in charge for that game. But you as a Man City fan, what's your experience? But also, what's your thoughts on Newcastle United being uh, taken over by the, Sa- the Saudi sovereign state? Yeah, I think it's very important that Newcastle United stay in the Premier League because uh, there's a geographic uh, question now that Sunderland are down and Middlesbrough are down, uh, and Borough will come back up, but Sunderland aren't going to be back up in the top flight for for years to come. Uh, so I, that, that's important to me. Yeah, as someone who went through the dual takeovers, right? Because we we were taken over by Shinawatra, the former Thai Prime Minister, in 2007, and then Shinawatra at um, a desperate time because his assets had been frozen. There were all kinds of concerns about his human rights record. He couldn't he couldn't um, bring money into the uh, United Kingdom and spend it on Manchester City. So Manchester City went through a, uh, a pretty big spending spree in the summer of 2007. Spending on Erickson was attracted as the manager. Uh, then it all went bad. Uh, and at that point, Shina Watra, desperate to sell the club, uh, ended up in contact with someone named Amanda Stavely, who uh, fixed up uh, Shina Watra with the Abu Dhabi with Sheikh Mansour and, and the money from Abu Dhabi that transformed the club. Uh, and, and Steve Lee played a, a, a huge role in that. And so there's actually a direct connection to the Newcastle takeover because obviously she was the driving force in this takeover. Unlike with City, it appears like she's going to stay on and, and uh, help manage the, the, the club. In, in the case of City, there were some growing pains. So the takeover happens. There is a lot of spending that's done. In that, uh, in the, the three or four days between the time it became inevitable that the takeover was going to happen and the takeover happened, Rubinho was famously remembered, but there were a number of other players brought in in that period, and City found itself in the relegation zone, sitting 18th uh, after Boxing Day. This is a team that had qualified for Europe. We were in Europe that season, also. We qualified for Europe based on the previous season. Uh, we're in the UEFA Cup. It had a good season under Sven Joran Eriksson, but again. The takeover and the assets being frozen, all of that had had a calamitous effect. Uh, I should mention a number of players were sold also. So it took a season, and then that second season we finished fifth, and that was uh, a season where players were being bought very haphazardly, right? And Mark Hughes was the manager and and spent a a fair amount of money on former players of his, uh, Craig Bellamy, Roque Santa Cruz, guys he he was comfortable with. It wasn't really until I would say the second half of or the tail end of the 10-11 season, which included winning the FA Cup. So that would have been three season, three years into this takeover uh, that things really kind of uh, settled with, with, with City. Now, with Newcastle, I think Newcastle is in a place where they're, uh, they're less successful right at this moment. Manchester City had had been relegated several times. That's always talked about, right, in the 90s and early 2000s, and that somehow success was bought. But by the time the take, Abu Dhabi took, takeover took place, Chris, City had been in the Premier League for several seasons in a row. And as I said, had finished in the top half the previous season before the takeover and had qualified for Europe and was in the UEFA Cup. And we actually made it to the quarterfinals of the UEFA Cup that year. So we were, uh, I mean, some of our problems that season, the year of the takeover were like... Uh, 
the problems that often teams that qualify for now the Europa League, which is the successor tournament to the UEFA Cup, have when they don't have a deep enough squad to balance both. Um, in terms of the Newcastle takeover, look, I don't like the Saudi sovereign fund coming in. I'm, as a political person, very critical of Saudi Arabia and the relationships that of all of the U.S. presidents, Clinton, Trump, Biden now, uh, have had with the, the Bushes, and particularly the Bush family, have had with Saudi Arabia. But I think it's unfair to say, hey, Newcastle, uh, this is where we're drawing the line. You're a club in desperate need. You're one of the few remaining really attractive clubs for foreign investors. I would put Leeds on that list. Uh, Aston Villa, although Aston Villa now has with Wes Edens and that ownership group a fair amount of money. Everton obviously got sold recently uh, a few years ago now to Mashiri. So Newcastle is really one of the last remaining gems out there. So we allowed a takeover for Everton. We allowed a takeover for Manchester City. We allowed, uh, we allowed these real scoundrels who don't violate human rights but profit off of all kinds of other stuff to run uh, Manchester United and run Arsenal. Arsenal's ownership, Cronky, he so much of his money is Walmart money, which is made off of exploitive practices, child labor, the sorts of stuff that liberal people who are complaining about Saudi Arabia would complain about if they connected Cronky to Walmart, which they haven't done for whatever reason, or at least not many of them have. So I think it would be grossly unfair for Newcastle not to get the investment. So I don't like the Saudis being in the league. At the same time, I think it's great to have a team from the Northeast that's going to be uber competitive from here on out. Yeah, I'm I'm on board there with you, Kartik, in terms of uh, your opinions about. I, I think that this deal had 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 to happen. I mean, with the. Uh, I mean, if you're going to reject this deal, then you should. The Premier League should have re- rejected similar deals in the past with, with other clubs. Um, it, it's a tough situation to be in, but um, yeah, it, it it moves forward. the The thing about this, though, too, is Newcastle United. Um, I think for the most part, I think fans kind of have a. Uh, uh, there's a likability about Newcastle United in terms of the fan base, the Geordies, and uh, being a one club uh, uh, in one city uh, thing, which is which is uh, which is rare. I mean, Leeds United is another one. I mean, of course, Sunderland is close to uh, Newcastle United, but Newcastle United is a big city, uh, a one club city, and a huge fan base, and it has a lot of likable players in the past, a lot of likable managers. And uh, I think success won't happen overnight, but it'll be interesting to see what happens and h- how they proceed in terms of you know, selecting a manager uh, and then players and, and how long it actually takes to get to make them into a success. I, I wonder, though, Kartik, because a lot of the criticism about, say, say Chelsea, when Chelsea uh, was acquired by Abramovich uh, and other teams in England, Man City being another perfect, perfect example where a lot of fans to this day still criticize like, oh, Chelsea, well, they bought the league or or City, they bought the league. I, I guess we'll get the same criticisms about Newcastle United. But I just wonder if we're in this time now, you mean 2021, where those things, I mean, you, you almost, almost have to pay huge amounts of money to be successful. And the less money you pay, for the most part, going back to soconomics, the less money you spend on, on, on players and wages, etc., uh, you're going to get uh, less success. Uh, whether or not there'll be the same level of criticism for Newcastle United as there would have been for um, Chelsea when, when, in quotations marks, they bought the league or, or City bought the league. What do you think? Yeah, 
it, and it's not that simple, right? To, the thing I learned as a City fan is it's, it's, I criticized Chelsea back in the day, not realizing how difficult it is to actually win the league and then maintain that level. And City at times have gotten stale, right? They've kept uh, guys too long, right? Because, it's, because the club ethos is a little different. I think clubs like United and Arsenal, were, and Arsenal especially, were very adept at moving guys on when their usefulness had, had, had run out. Now, Arsenal now is a mess, but I'm talking about Arsenal during the peak Wenger days. Right. Very adept at getting guys out the door. I think both Chelsea and Manchester City, because the clubs came from a different place, there's been almost a sentiment that has led both clubs to hold on to players for too long. And you're seeing it. You could argue you see it with City now, right? City made some, bought one player this summer. That's it. It was realish. Obviously, the goal, the goal was to get Harry Kane also and buy a second player. But... Um, in fact, there's someone, a friend of mine, who is an Arsenal fan who admires Manchester City. He tells me, look, I love the fact that you kept Yaya Torre for so many years. You kept Vincent Company for so many years. And you, and you kept David Silver for so many years. Arsenal doesn't do that anymore. Arsenal has never really done that since Wenger came in, right? He inherited the, 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 the core of the George Graham, Bruce Ryersh teams that he kept for the first few years. But then once he started bringing in his own players, guys were cycled out, right? If they were 28 or 29, they were moved on. So mm-hmm. uh, it's not that simple. And, and so I, I uh, think we need to be very tolerant of how, however Newcastle chooses to do this build. Next up is Nick. Nick says, the international break has proven that, at least for me, soccer burnout is the main reason why I don't watch MLS. I'll usually watch anywhere from one to three matches on a Saturday or a Sunday morning or afternoon from the different leagues around Europe. By the time the evening comes around, I'm usually almost always ready to do something else or at the very least watch something else besides sports. This international break had very few games I was interested in, nothing really besides the semifinals and the final of the Nations League. When the evening rolled around and MLS was on, I found myself watching and enjoying the games since I hadn't watched any sports all day. I'm only one person, but I think that this shows that for me, MLS is in competition with the big European leagues, even if it doesn't clash with them directly. Unfortunately, MLS isn't able to uh, compete with those leagues, as the only thing that it offers that they don't is the opportunity to go in person, which doesn't have anything to do with their TV product. This translates to good match day attendances, but poor TV ratings. I don't say this as a MLS hater. I would like the league to do well, and I would like to support it more myself. Unfortunately, there just aren't enough hours in the day, and the MLS have enough to take my limited TV uh, watching time away from European, European leagues on earlier in the day. Yeah, some good analysis there by Nick. What I would say, though, Kartik, just to counter that, though, is MLS is back. And MLS is back, which was a audacious effort, a huge pull-off. They were able to pull it off Major League Soccer uh, in combination with ESPN. They had games. They had games played in the morning. And it was, I mean, for the first time ever, you had MLS scheduling games to be played at, you know, what was it, like 8.30 in the morning or 9 o'clock in the morning, uh, on weekdays or weekends, when most of the other leagues around the world were on lockdown, MLS created the bubble. And there was a lot of anticipation. There was a lot of excitement going into this because I think a lot of people thought, OK, hey, could this work for MLS? I mean, is is the issue the timing of the games? Is the issue that uh, if we went ahead and play games in the morning as a test, 
would those games generate as much TV viewing numbers as a Watford against Liverpool or wh- whichever team it is or Juventus against Roma or whatever, wh- whatever team it is fr- from Europe? And the reality is, is when those numbers came back, those numbers were poor, really, really poor. I think a lot of those games were less than 100,000 viewers. Uh, a lot of people were on lockdown, had nothing to do, weren't, uh, weren't working. And those numbers didn't, they weren't positive contact, they were not positive at all. So, so given that, what, what does that tell you? I still think it's an issue because for me, I just I'm I am kind of burnt out and want to watch a movie or do something else. Uh, by the time, let's say the last Serie A matches and last La Liga matches end, but yeah, you're right. Uh, MLS is back. The ratings weren't great, so that proves maybe in general it's it's a different. Uh, it's just it comes down to interest and quality and and maybe the quality of presentation among other things, uh, and I. I don't know, because I also think MLS, the big part of the problem is that there's no real continuity or feel to, to, to many of these teams. And while uh, we're now 20, 25 plus years in for, for nine of the clubs, we are all, although many of them have changed their names and their branding, right? In that period, we're also constantly getting new, new clubs added to the league every year, and they're not organic clubs that are promoted with a fan base and a history and all of that. So I, I still think until MLS stabilizes and, 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 and looks the same for several successive years and players aren't moving around so frequently, there isn't an expansion draft every year, et cetera, uh, it's probably not going to change a whole lot. I think, I think one thing to think about or to consider is the, the equity that's built up into supporting a team. So, for example, if you take a um, an average American soccer fan who lives in the United States and he or she uh, supports Everton and maybe he or she also supports an MLS team and maybe it's NYCFC and this person lives in know, middle America, far away from NYCFC, far away from Everton. And what's the level of support for those those teams? I mean, how much... How much have they put into supporting Everton versus put into supporting NYCFC? Have they been supporting Everton a lot longer? Maybe it's 10 years versus NYCFC, which maybe, say, hypothetically, is maybe three years. Um, and for a person living in the middle America uh, who's far away from both of those places, yes, closer to New York City, but still far, far away where he or she probably can't go to those games, I mean – does that person have more access to news about Everton, to discussing Everton at his or her place where he or she works, at the water cooler, talking about how Everton did last weekend in that game, blah, 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 while maybe perhaps there's less people talking about NYCFC? I think, I think that's part of it. I think that that's part of it, too, is NYCFC to this person would just be... I mean, there's no difference between NYCFC and Everton, even though that team is in the United States and the other team is in England. If anything, probably access to news and information and sharing stories and going to a local pub to watch a Everton game on a weekend versus going to a pub, uh, I mean, or a bar in his or her town to watch a NYCFC game. Chances are pr- pretty good that there would be more Everton fans in that pub than would, there would be NYCFC in NYCFC fans at that bar or restaurant. I, I I don't think that the national appeal of a team like Everton 
will be far greater than the national appeal for a NYCFC. Uh, now, if you live in New York City and you ha- you happen to you mean go to the games at uh, Yankee Stadium and you become you mean a season ticket holder and you go there, you're chanting, you're having a beer, meeting new friends. That's a whole completely different experience. But when it comes to watching it on television, um, there aren't a lot of competitive advantages to having NYCFC in the same country. Uh, as where you live versus like Everton. Everton, it, it could be a team anywhere in the world. It could be a team in, in Asia or something like, like that. You may feel more of an attachment to, to that team for whatever reason. And, and maybe too also, you mean, you might be a big fan of Tim Howard or you mean Landon Donovan and all these pl- Americans who have played with Everton that may have more of a, a connection, uh, closer connection for you to that team than it would NYCFC, which just seems to be just, a, just another team. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox, Sakati, and I'll move on to the next uh, item of news in our listener mailbag segment, and that comes from Bill. Bill says, uh, fans are slowly being allowed back to matches in both Argentina and Brazil, bringing a a much-needed atmosphere to those games. The problem is, Paramount Plus still has their commentators pushed up way too high on the audio mix, with the crowd noise uh, way too low. The crowd atmosphere is the best part of South American soccer, now that the fans are back, the commentators should be able to let the game breathe more and talk less. And that's something probably, Kartik, that uh, you mean, a lot of commentators have probably so, been so used to being either the solo co- commentator or being so used to, in the last couple of years, commentating with uh, no fans in the stadium or also limited fans in the stadium. Or it might be just their style. Their style is to talk more. And uh, not that the fans, which that that's a, such a huge important piece of the puzzle, is letting the fans, let, letting the game breathe, giving spaces of time in a broadcast. John John Champion does this perfectly as far as letting the fans speak. Sometimes they can speak louder than any words that John could say. All right, next up is Asian coverage. This comes from Chris. Chris says, Hi, guys. I wanted to give a huge shout-out to Paramount Plus for stepping up to the U.S. home of both the AFC Asian World Cup qualifiers and the AFC Champions League. The coverage has been excellent so far with both competitions. While we're talking about Asian football, I have a question about the upcoming A-League season. My question to either of you is, does ESPN Plus have the rights for this season? keep up the good work and i don't believe they do chris um I, i'd have to check on this i don't believe they do so that one is up in the air um and it could possibly be going into paramount plus i know they've got a lot of uh rights uh in the australasia area so we'll have to wait and see on that one next up is matt matt says uh, some feedback about the women's uh, uefa champions league matt says i'm sending this after the first match day of the uefa women's champions league coverage and I was very, very impressed by DAZN's and UEFA's coverage of the uh, UEFA Women's Champions League so far. Overall, what a huge improvement on the competition's uh, seriousness by UEFA as a whole. As someone who watched the Chelsea women's side trying to find the right stream to watch the game was a nightmare last season. The ease of accessibility of the Women's UEFA Champions League was a huge welcoming change by UEFA and DAZN being broadcasted through YouTube. I am very optimistic this competition can grow. Kartik, I think think you mentioned last week, I think you watched uh, uh, some of the games, but have you had a chance to watch any more of their coverage? 
Uh, no, I just watched that first uh, that first match day. So, uh, but I, I am uh, I am planning on watching more. Okay. If you've got something that you want to ask us uh, on the show, uh, we'd love to read it, your comment out on air. So whether it's any feedback on anything we've discussed, any questions about television coverage or streaming coverage, um, we would love to hear from you. You can always reach us via email through web at worldsoccertalk.com as well as facebook.com uh, slash worldsoccertalk and on Twitter at worldsoccertalk. Plus, of course, you can always post your comments on worldsoccertalk.com in the podcast uh, thread for the uh, the latest latest episode. Also, uh, Kyle wanted me to mention, too, that so we have the interviews coming up pretty soon with uh, Christian Polanco from The Cooligans, as well as Derek Ray from ESPN, NBC, um, Fox, and uh, FIFA 22 video game and many other places. And uh, But we want to also find out um, if there's any guests that you would recommend for us to interview. So uh, ideally, it's, it's in the soccer media business, but uh, let us know if there's anyone out there that you'd uh, really appreciate us interviewing. Kartik, what about you? Any, uh, anyone, any, any recommendations of somebody that you'd like to uh, hear from uh, on the uh, Soccer Show and Tell show? Uh, yeah, uh, plenty of people, and I, I'm looking forward to uh, to the Cooligans interview. I think that'll be that'll be really cool. I think Herc Gomez would be a good one. Ooh, yeah, that, that would be he a good bring, one. He brings he brings it for uh, <laughs> on uh, Football uh, Americas and, uh, and, and all his appearances. I think he'd be a yeah. good one, and I, I think uh, uh, Kyle will have a lot of fun with him. Yeah, it's really fre- refreshing hearing Herc too. We interviewed him what, about two to three years ago. Again, time <laughs> who knows? It might have been longer, but kind of in his earlier days uh, at the time working with ESPN, and I think at the time also he was working with Fox. And we said to him, "Hey, we love your analysis. We love how direct you are. We love how you speak your mind. We love how you basically tell it the way it is. And and you've got a lot of knowledge. We definitely value you as an, an analyst. And uh, we wish you the best of luck in the future. And I think he's gone on to bigger and better things already. Uh, and he continues to impress me. He's he's one of the guys." which is not that many around who really, really speaks his mind and just you know, doesn't seem to care. I mean, he's, you could tell that uh, some of the things he talks about kind of cuts through a lot of the chatter and goes straight to the heart of the point and is very direct. And, and that I like about him. That, that I think, uh, yeah, I agree, Kartik. I think he would be a great uh, recommendation for a future episode. All right, listeners, uh, thank you so much for listening to this uh, podcast. We release it every week, uh, usually on Thursdays, on your uh, devices, everything from Amazon Music, Spotify, Pandora, YouTube, Stitcher, iTunes, TuneIn, Audioboom, Overcast, and WorldSoccerTalk.com. If you like the show, share it with your friends on social media and give us a review on iTunes. We would greatly appreciate it. Actually, I should say it's probably... uh, Apple Podcasts now is, is where you do the, the reviews rather than iTunes. In Kartik, <laughs> the international break is over, thankfully. Uh, we're heading into another weekend of club football, and it's hopefully going to be the start of a very interesting month because uh, later this month, a lot of huge derbies coming up. Manchester United against Liverpool is one that I have my eye on. This Sunday is uh, Swansea City against Cardiff City in the Walsh Derby. And that one I'm really, really 
not looking forward to it's to me it's not, not a great experience as a fan because there's so much on the line uh, and, it, and it's a game that ends up being sometimes pretty dour and because it, you mean it means so much but I will watch it and I will hope that they win but heading into another weekend of club football from around um, around the world Kartik uh, what should they do enjoy your football What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 